We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're speaking with built environment professionals involved in architectural education, and we're going to explore how prospective students, current students and graduates of architecture have engaged with the learning of architecture. Our guest in this episode is architectural educator Dr. Louise Wallace from the University of Tasmania. Louise is an architectural education specialist and is the chair of the School of Architecture and Design's Learning and Teaching Committee. In this interview, Louise shares how complex the education of architects is, the progressive consolidation of architecture competencies within education curriculums, and the advancements in education delivery, such as the development of cadetship or apprenticeship architecture courses in the UK. I'll now hand over to Nicole Mosqueda-Mendez, who is the 2022 National Sonar President based in Queensland. Let's jump in. Architectural education happens in a number of ways. One of the key elements of this education is an individual's experience at university. It forms a foundation for students to enter the profession and begins to shape how one perceives the world. I'm Nicole Mosqueda-Mendez, SONA National President, and in this episode of Hearing Architecture, we'll be talking with Louise Wallace about architectural education in its many facets and the role we each play in shaping this pedagogical framework. Louise has over 20 years of experience in teaching and researching architectural design education. She is currently working at the University of Tasmania, where she teaches Design Build Studio, Materials and Making, and Integrated Design Studios. Hi, Louise. Thanks for being part of the podcast. Hi, Nicole. Great to be a part of it too. Louise, you've been involved in architecture and architectural education for a while now. Why are you so passionate about architectural education and why do you think it's so important? I've always been very interested in architectural education, whether it's been through my interest of architecture or it's been in my interest of education. The two of them happened to marry together for me. I, um, As a, a young person, I was exposed to building sites a lot growing up and visiting my dad on them and uh, being very involved in that sort of thing of being supported and encouraged with um, creative means of designing, making and all those types of things. In the other way, I was also very connected to education. I lived across from a school and lived on a block where all the school teachers lived and the principals and had a lot of influence from friendships and family friends so when it came to what my career was going to be it seemed very obvious and um, I undertook architecture and later on in that still feeling very passionate about why architecture is important and knowing that not lots of people are involved in it or understand what's in it I wanted to be involved in the education of it so how can others create and design the environment that they're in because I think it's incredibly important and completely underestimated. From your experience teaching so far, have you found an answer to your question yet? 
it's how long is a piece of string really isn't it <laughs> the more the more you know the more that you know you don't know and you become aware of the complexity of these things so initially when i finished my architectural education i was passionate that i felt that students needed to be better prepared to go into the profession post-education and hence how I ended up studying architectural education and researching it in it and have been involved in it for 20 years now which is quite a time span and you, th you think you could you could make a difference or have a good answer to it at this point but you have to remember that you're one person and it's a large world and there's lots of factors going on around you and the circumstances change and so evidently how architectural education is it has changed in 20 years time there are similarities and differences but it's surprising how much it is the same despite the technology and the delivery and advances in community issues so yeah Throughout that whole time, what would you say some of the commonalities that have remained the same are? Uh, strong commonalities is that everyone privileges the design studio and identifies with the design studio as being the, the key thing that makes an architect or the key way to demonstrate one's skills or prowess. The thing that people want to talk about most is the design and those parts of it. I think another thing that's been extremely common is whether students are prepared sufficiently enough when they depart from their degree. And another thing is the continuous debate as to what the role of architectural education is between academics and the profession. Not saying that they're exclusive in how they view or see each other, but just that there is diversity of views and I've found evidence in my research going back across many of decades and many of centuries that show this tension and dilemma as to whether architects, artists, builders, designers, what what is the um, importance, what are the, the real ideology and skills that they need what are those values and the argument against craft and art has been going on for quite some time and I don't see that disappearing that quickly <laughs> since it has been going on for quite a long time for example I found in a study in the US in the 1920s that the profession was arguing that people who educate were too disconnected from practice. So you can see, and I've, I've found evidence of that again in the 50s and 60s, and in the research I've been involved in over 20 years, I keep finding that as well. So it's not something new. What is probably new is how it's being characterised or described, but it doesn't remove the underlying tension that everyone has a different impression of what architecture is for and what it means and, and what it is. And, and that's where this diversity of opinion um, exists and thrives. From your perspective, what would you see the purpose of architectural education to be? Well, I see the purposes of architectural education being, being introduced to what 
what has been precedence and understanding both the history of architecture and how that fits with changes in society and technology is incredibly important. Understanding the, the role it is, whether it's a monument, whether it's a sacred church, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's a, a cultural significant, a civic significant space. So to me, it's, it's about this amazing thing that architecture tells a story and it tells a story not only for the people who use it and interact with it, but for many years then afterwards. Like even if it ends up as a piece of archaeology or remnants of a, a building remains in the soil, it talks about us as humans. Now, whether as humans we're being good custodians of the earth is a, a whole other another gambit, but architecture is that record because you don't always have records of things written down or recordings of things, but buildings and materials in the environment have lasted a long time and they give us this window, this window into how society has progressed, how humans are humans. Yeah, it's inescapable. It seems that between what you were saying there about sort of like the purpose of architecture, that there is that link between it being both an art and a craft. So why do you think that there's this sort of debate that's happening about the purpose of architectural education being one or the other? Like, why can't it be both? I think it can be both, but I think there's some dominant paradigms out there. That there are there are different ways that we understand things, whether it's, if I'm using crudely, the arts and the sciences. There's different ways that we know things and whether we value things. And... Because we're in this in-between space, I think it makes architectural education incredibly valuable because you, you have a window into these two different worlds. But in saying that, potentially you're a master of neither. <laughs> so um, you're, you're both a bridge and, and you have pockets of knowledge, interest, curiosity and all those things. And I think that's what makes an architectural education incredibly valuable. I remember once reading a description that said the shelf life of an architectural education is extremely long because of the broadness of the education. Having an appreciation not only of philosophy, history, culture, but also then having an understanding of some of the, the basic sciences that in, then inform construction and thermal comfort and how materials react and behave together. So I, I guess that's why I'm so um, interested and still in love with it is because you never get to a, a complete answer and there's always more to learn and through that you're you're learning about your place in the world and um, how it may be different or the same to other people too and how they experience it because this whole thing of designing buildings for people and in my interest as well I'm also interested in how we design for animals and habitat that it's, it's really interesting to be the conceiver of something and then be able to be literally a voyeur and sit back and see how this potentially impacts or influences how people uh, use the building. And, and that can be good and bad. And that's, again, that 
continuous learning experience and why why we consider that to be good at architecture takes a period of time to develop those skills that it's very much experiential learning that you're responding and interacting with things and that um, being a novice you can have some incredible insights you've got enthusiasm you've got new ideas you've got connection with a different generation of how people live and are inspired but at the same time you want to mix that with someone who's got a bit of experience and sort of bounce off each other and I think that's what the profession really values when they they get graduates into their office that new innocence excitement and can-do attitude which sometimes when you get very involved in things or have been involved in things for a long time you can develop routines or you may not see some things in the same excited light as young graduates. Yeah I think for, for me personally that whole idea of continuous learning is what is so appealing about it because there's always more and there's always something else to explore and uncover. You mentioned before that this sort of studio and the design-based side of architectural education is this sort of pinnacle within the curriculum. Many architecture students would say that the sort of studio culture that arises from this academic unit forms a key component of their education as well. And studies have shown that it can have a positive effect in creating community, but it can also lead to sort of toxic cultures that promote competitiveness and all-nighters and just generally unhealthy behaviour. So from the research that you've undertaken on the studio concept in all of its forms of architectural education, how do you think we can collectively create and promote a collaborative and productive studio culture? Big question. Big question in the sense of it's always been something that's really concerned me that culture can be both healthy and negative, that you want people to feel a sense of belonging and feel a part of a club per se. And being a part of that club means that there's going to be expectations or nuances or ways that you behave and how you compare yourself to others. And that sense of wanting to belong and fitting in and to potentially please people who have significant reputations or seniority or standing within the community makes it interesting because we all like to emulate, mimic, copy, try all these things out. And it's hard to stand alone and you want to, to join this club and be a part of it but you're sort of learning the rules of how do you engage or how do you have your independence but be a part of a a group at the the same time and I do think there are some significant myths that have been perpetuated within these realms one of them has to do with commitment and whether you display sufficient commitment and by being present being seen or being heard sort of suggests that you're committed and you're enthusiastic and a lot of times students, academics and the profession have equated rightly or wrongly that if someone's really committed that has to mean that they're going to be really good at it but effort and promise don't equal each other. We we know that effort 
makes a significant difference because you get to practice things and practice is really important but sometimes you can practice something too much or you can be guided by your peers or someone else to practice something and not understand why so I think it needs to be tempered and I I think that whole studio culture thing has been pulled apart as such in Australia anyway because there's less dedicated studio spaces or spaces physically designated for students to get together. It's more controlled. There's certain hours where people get together. It's up to the students whether they occupy a virtual space or another space in the university or colleges to do their work. So in some parts it's been pulled apart a bit that you it's hard to assess how committed, but I'm sure there's still all the conversations like I still hear it, but students going, oh, I did an all-nighter or I crashed and burned with this at my chute, so now I'm going to have to restart all over again and do all this. And so you still hear the same phrases going on in terms of what I would have heard probably 20, 25 years ago, but there's still things that we we like to associate with and that is a part of our identity and that that commitment and that passion and wanting to do right is a part of that but I know through my research with understanding learning and teaching and cognition that yeah effort doesn't equal promise it's it's not a, a direct relationship and that it's being more critical about how you're using your time, understanding why you're doing certain things that you're doing and and allowing yourself to fail. I think that's one of the biggest things I, I find because of the whole system of students having far more limited time, everybody having more limited time and the fact that we're paying more for our education that the concept of failing is pretty scary and nobody really wants to do it. People want to build confidence and they want to know that they're on the pathway. So in some ways, nearly even it's the language between experimenting and testing and practising, seeing instead of failing something that you're just practising or experimenting and then how, how successful was that for the period that you did that for. A lot of times students don't know why tutors or practitioners or architects or academics are asking them to redo something or reconsider something they see it as oh I got it wrong I've got to try harder to get it right so I don't have to redo something but it's actually the redoing and the reframing which is how you're learning and getting that experience and knowledge building up in your your own mind to be able to work independently but a lot of times that's not evident and a lot of times students feel like no I don't want that feeling I don't want that feeling where I feel like that I'm being told in front of my peers that I've got it wrong not that hey at this point in time these are the things I need to to work with and blah 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 it's no, you, you've got it wrong, you, you potentially didn't listen, you should have a look more at these precedents. And I don't think educators deliberately do that to students, but they're so used to being in an environment where we're always 
analyzing and critiquing things that sometimes we forget to preface it or to invite our novices into this environment and for them to understand what it means so that literally they don't have to build up this thick skin by themselves or with their peers that they've got some appreciation what's happening because typically how you learn at high school or college is very different to how you learn in a, a design studio and in a creative means. Do you have any suggestions for students to help them develop this mindset that they aren't sort of being attacked during a critique and to help them reframe advice that's been given to them in a more productive way? I often give advice to students that what their um, educators or what their tutors, etc., all that are saying to them is their opinion. It's their advice. It's, it's there to provoke you to think about what you've done and why you've done it. So it, you might just say, oh, well, it looks and it feels right, but can you unpack it or pull it apart more? Have you got something that gives a rationale why this is appropriate? And in some cases, it's nearly drawing what's inappropriate or trying another way that actually helps reveal what what is working well or what is a, a better solution. So I always recommend to students that it's advice being given. It, it may um, sometimes be in the right context, other times it may not be because you may have a guest critiquer come in and they don't have some of the background of what has been asked previously or what has been suggested. It may be in conflict with what you've been advised to do and there's nothing more frustrating than doing what you thought you were told to do and then have somebody else say, oh, I think you should do this, and you're thinking, oh, well, I had done that. But there's quite a, a nuance in between, and it's, and it's learning how to describe and interpret what's being said, but also doing that visually. One thing that we particularly emphasise in the school that I'm at is the difference between you and I language. So when you're talking about the work, you're talking about the work. You're not talking about the person as going, you should consider this or you could do this or da-da-da-da because it, it comes across as being a little bit more judgment, accusing, that sort of thing. When you use I and go, I think this because of these reasons and I like this, I'm not sure about this or I don't think this is successful because of da-da-da-da, you're allowing the student to take that critique on board and then work through it and understand that it's it's a choice and it's a part of that mechanism of understanding. Yes, I know that's really easy for me to say because students will be going, oh, well, they mark me, so I've got to satisfy them. And But all I can say is you can be trapped in that route if you're always trying to satisfy a tutor and you don't know why you're doing what you're doing but you know they're happy with it you, you want to get out of that cycle somehow so you want to be doing a bit of both you want to be testing and trying what they're suggesting or as I recommend is ask the question back to them there's nothing more powerful than engaging in a conversation or a critique that someone gives you and being neutral about it and saying 
I don't quite understand why you said this because I thought this was doing that. And so by you being able to clarify or ask questions and feel that you have that role and autonomy as well is really important in the, the conversation. And I see it as a conversation. I don't see it as it being more dominated in one direction or another. I see it as trying a co-production of knowledge or understanding of what's going on. So I think if you have a better or a bigger perspective of what's going on, that you don't have to always own what's being said or done. And in some instances, someone can be having a really bad day or they can be at the end of numerous crits and feeling a little bit worse for wear and just thinking, well, if that was a bit curt or a bit short, I'm just seeing, oh, well, that's a shame that that happened, but that's not a complete reflection of me, that others also own what they say and do as well. I think that's some really great advice. And I think that idea of having this like wider perspective and sense of almost detachment from your self-worth to your work is really important. I'd just like to go back to what you were talking about before in this identity that we create within architecture schools and architecture as a profession and almost the mimicry that sometimes happens and Mm. how you think we can sort of break this cycle to some extent. Well, when you look at a lot of disciplines, it's easy to pick people out potentially by the clothes they wear the pen or pencil that they use, where they keep their notes or their drawings or how they draw something. So there is this really important thing about identity and being acknowledged as belonging to um, a discipline or place. It's just also allowing within that identity to have difference or individuality as well like (laughs) if it was all consistent it would be a bit sad but it always amuses me because I've been teaching first year for quite some time that I love meeting and seeing all the students arrive and you can see them come along and some of them will have stronger identities that they express than others but once you get to the end of fifth year you can see a little bit more of a a coherence or a consistency in in terms of how people carry themselves even the language that they use so there is lots of mimicking and imitating going on and and I guess that's a way of being accepted like if, if you went into an office and you were so offbeat and um, came in with your biro pen and your exercise line book <laughs> to take some notes and do some some sort of drawings or something or other, people would probably look at you very curiously and think, did you do an architecture degree? Like it, it's, it's a bit of a throwaway line, but you understand what I mean in, in terms of There's both that importance of people feel that you belong in the group, but also then you know that that form of agency of where you can have differences. And it's really important to have different architects in a practice or office together because you have to be pretty special to be an expert at everything. And to me, the most important thing is working in a team and it's realising 
the, the strengths and potentials of people and what motivates people so that you can get everyone inspired and interested to work together. Otherwise, it's just really tough. If you're the, the boss or the leader and you feel like you're having to put your arms out and drag everybody with you to get a job finished or to do something or to get on board, it's, it's just not that much fun. It's just very stressful. And so um, you do want people to have individual skills. And I think architectural education, rightly or wrongly, does privilege the design studio and people get a, a sense of worth from how good they are assessed as being a designer. But in saying that, in a practice and office, we need a variety of people. We all don't want to be the absolute best designers if none of us are very good at documenting, detailing, dealing with contracts, dealing with conflict working together like if we're all individuals and we can't really arrive at a consensus or an opinion uh yeah we're all going to be working independently within the same space so and that works really well for a sole practitioner but when we're talking about significant buildings like hospitals educational centers science labs aircraft terminals, all sorts of things. You can't do that as one person. You, you need many people and in the same way you need a lot of other actors involved as well with the, the consultants, the, the constructors or the builders and the makers. So I think it's a little bit of a shame that architectural education by rights or wrong, like it's important to reflect that we have a good sense of design and that we meet this threshold, that's important. But I think it's also important to recognise and give confidence to people who are good at implementing or executing good design that allow this to take place and that's more recognised within the, the profession because for some people they can be pretty deflated by the time they, they get to the end of things because if you look at it, there's always... A section of the class that does well there's always a section that that does pretty good or okay and then there's a section that are just sort of just making it but in other aspects or ways they could be a really good contributor but in that unit or that final professional project or capstone thing that they're doing it may not show their their best attributes do you think that architectural education and the way it's structured needs to be reconsidered or restructured potentially to account for this diversity and I guess ultimately to not preference the design studio as much as it may do at the moment? I think it is a, a definite possibility. The only factor that works against it is that the space for curriculum that's specifically on architecture design is under pressure. And it's under pressure by many things that universities and governments value at the moment in terms of more generic skills, in, in terms of being a critical thinker, being able to communicate well, understanding global issues, all these sorts of things, potentially by the mechanism or the way or, or giving breadth to students 
outside of their discipline means that architecture design gets diluted a bit. So the opportunity to specialise or develop skills beyond the first thing that we all think about, being a designer, is less possible. You, you really have to find and really exploit those opportunities when you get them, but they're, they're definitely secondary at this point in time. And it's part and parcel of this objective of ensuring that we know our profession well, but also we know other ways of thinking and other professions well so we can interact with them. And I, there's a juggling act going on there at the moment, and I think at present it's gone a little too far one way. If I look back about 30 years ago, architecture schools were in control per se of the curriculum and all the units that students studied. Because of mass education or trying to ensure more people can be educated throughout the world and have the opportunities that uh, higher education gives, and because funding is going down, it means that they're trying to find some economies. They're, they're trying to find things where they see there's overlaps or opportunities for students to get together with not only architectural designers but other people to learn these things and by doing it a little bit more broadly that means that the time spent on architectural design is minimized a bit more and this has been happening for the last 30 years that it's been going down that the pressure's been on accreditation used to have a bit of a role in it or have a little bit more leverage than it currently has. Accreditation has changed in how its programs are assessed across Australia and New Zealand. I actually think accreditation is just taking a bit of time at the moment to find, find its ways. As I said, everything is a moving feast. So once you change something, another thing changes and it's just trying to keep the whole thing together and consistent. But from what I see of the new accreditation requirements, which introduces a lot more practical knowledge about construction and practice, as well as ESD considerations, so actually how do you do something to be responsible, not motherhood statements per se, and then the acknowledgement of Indigenous people and acknowledgement of the environment is going to have a bigger impact on the sort of experiences and diversity that comes within architectural design and potentially give more levers for these factors to be significant parts of um, students' experience through architectural education. I think as a student it is quite reassuring to see all of these things being embedded within the curriculum. So, and, and it is coming from many directions. Like, unfortunately, a few disasters in the building industry of um, fires or buildings not performing how they should do and people going to court over it has put a magnifying glass on some of these things and, and has got the profession, government, the community to ask questions of, are our architects and engineers being trained effectively enough or who's accountable and why are they accountable and how, how does this 
work within it. So in some ways it's nearly even more valuing what an architect does, whereas in some ways it, it feels like it, it's sort of stagnated or felt a little bit lost for a while there because with the advent of project managers, many different contract types, developers, the architect sort of arena is getting far more specialised and, and smaller, but there is the ability and there is the need for being involved more in this. It's just making sure people have the experience, the background and the skills to be able to be a part of it and believe that and be able to talk about that in interdisciplinary teams and and understand what their, their role can be. So the biggest thing I would say is really important is even though it's easy to get fatigued by surveys, by joining committees, by being a part of professional groups, we desperately need people to voice what their experiences are because irrespective of whether it's being heard or not, it's important for that message to be out there and for it to be strong. Otherwise, we're relying on others and we only get what others think, say and do. So my my opinion is you really can't complain about something unless you're in, in the game. So I know it's hard to do that sometimes and I get fatigued as well, but it is important and I think the emergence of Imagine has been really important. That and Parlour has been another really significant introduction of two groups in the last decade. I think it's really important for there to be a group that fits the needs of young graduates and this transition between architecture to the profession because I think there was a big gap there previously and I I think they've got an important role to negotiate in there and to be heard and I think they actually can have a very strong voice in this. The other one, parlour, which is more talking about inclusivity, not only of women but LGTBI people as well, First Nations people, the importance of that diversity. And that's one thing that really has bothered me for a long time is how stable it has been of who is an architect or what the statistics show even when you get later on to experienced architects or senior academics, they, they do sort of fit into one category. And we've been chipping away at this for quite some time. I feel like we're starting to get a bit of traction these days, which is really great, but I think that probably follows the whole community is doing that. There's a, a resurgence of revealing and celebrating all these different people that are in our society and that it shouldn't be just one group or the the dominant group that has a say or it's according to their perceptions or their reading of something so i just like to encourage more people to be members of sona imagine parlor even if it's just doing one thing a month i think that would make a huge difference if everyone had some way of being involved because the more involvement and the more vitality we have, the better and healthier we're going to be. And we're all going 
we're not all going to, but we're going to have connections and relationships with a lot of other people through our families, through businesses we work in, our different jobs. And I, I think it's important that we are advocates, even though we don't always want to be advocates or be assumed to be of a certain type and belief and, and that's the only way it can be. I think it's, um, it's really important to have pride in it but also know how you can be a, a member of a larger team. Most definitely. I think that diversity of perspectives within the profession is incredibly important. And in order to design for a wide number of people, the profession needs to be made up of a wide number of people. There's great diversity in the look of buildings. Why can't there be in the people who create them? Exactly. <laughs> With all of these changes happening in the world and with the changes to the national standards for competency of architects, how do you see these shifts um, manifesting within architectural education? Well, work integrated learning um, is fashionable again at the moment in, in terms of making sure that students get that ability to be on site, go on a building site, be in a, a meeting between clients to experience and see all these things. And I think that's really healthy. I think what needs help there is the, the framework and how everyone knows what their roles and responsibilities are in that because otherwise people are not sure what's okay, what what do students want to get out of it? What do practitioners want to see students get out of it? How to make it meaningful because there is a little bit of a hitch with the whole work integrated learning because it's connected to money and funding as well. And so the student is paying the university money to go on a work integrated learning experience. But then the practitioners are the people that are providing the experience and so you can see that without a lot of organisation and a lot of people communicating and knowing all these purposes of what's going on, that there could be a lot of confusion as to what's appropriate, whether when the student turns up, whether the office feels like they've got time to, to give these experiences or, or what, what would be useful for them to get out of it. So I think that is significant. I, th I think there needs to be some more work done in that too and probably um, imagine the Institute, the AACA, are uh, probably well-placed to, to put forward some more things about how to make this effective because it is a great opportunity and it's the way that students build confidence and if practitioners have concerns about what the students are demonstrating or doing, that there's an avenue or a way that they can talk to someone at university and understand where the students are at and how this is being scaffolded and put together because everyone's somewhere along the pathway and sometimes it's easy to forget what it was like when you were at that enthusiastic graduate coming into an office and also understanding that just because you may be looking at your phone, looking at something, doesn't mean that you're not engaged or you may not be looking at something or taking notes or something like that. It's so easy 
for different generations to look at each other and go, oh, I assume they're doing this or they're not behaving how I would behave or if I had a problem in the past, I would just communicate, I would tell this person. Whereas when you're new and you're starting something, you just want to keep your mouth shut, do a good job and busily try and work out what in the hell you're supposed to be doing because you think you're supposed to know when you don't know something. And, yeah, that's a real tangle to get into. And so sort of I've, I've heard people talk about it on Instagram posts of how many questions is it all right for me to ask when I'm in the office? Like when I get asked to do something, how many questions am I allowed to ask before they think I'm, a, I'm dubious or I'm a bit slow or am I supposed to work this out? Like how, how do you know? Because, yeah, everyone has a different way. Some people say to fake it till you make it and learn from it and be confident. Other people want to ask lots of questions before they do something. Or some might just take a long time to do something because they're, they're caught in a loop of going, hmm, I'm not sure what I'm doing. So I just think it's really important, that whole communication thing and, and understanding those roles and what everyone's trying to get out of it. And recently I spoke to some graduates I taught last year and I was really heartened to hear that the offices they went into wanted to talk to them about their career progression right from the start and talk about mentoring and what were the different things that they could do over the next two to three years so that the students could progress and make it to registration and the investment that the firm's putting in as well as the students putting in is going to make for a productive person at the end and we're not going to lose somebody along the way because of um, these misunderstandings or just bad timings of where you get a job, when you get a job, whether it's a boom in the construction cycle or it's a GFC. And, and how, how as students and graduates can be resilient and get to know people by going to casual events and just getting out there a little bit more that you know that these bad things have happened to other people but there's ways to get through it and really valuing that mentorship and conversations with people that you don't usually have or with people that you don't know yet are really important because if you, if you just hang out with your same group, your, your same peers, nobody's really knowledgeable. <laughs> like you're all perpetuating the same things. So it's, it's really important to have some people who are outliers that make those connections and bring, bring groups together. It really is quite heartening to see the level of support industry has for emerging graduates coming through and supporting that career progression. Do you think at a university level though, that there needs to be a stronger relationship between the profession and architectural education to sort of strengthen students' confidence when they graduate? Oh, most definitely. And one of the ways that I would suggest that needs work is how practitioners are remunerated. Like I, I think it's important that there is the opportunity for practitioners to give back and some of it is more in a, a voluntary capacity but I think in terms of how P 
people are paid for more than a one-off thing that they need to be paid better because the rate of pay that they get significantly influences who we get involved and whether people feel like they're being valued and whether they're wanting to come back for more. So I'd say that both academics are under pressure to do more things with less and so they possibly have, I know they do, they have less time to engage with the profession, to even meet and discuss with them and after a session, which is really important to get that dialogue happening. So the time and space for dialogue, for prep and reflection, and then also being able to pay practitioners a reasonable rate of pay for them to come out of the office and actually be a part of the education because a study in 2019 found that 77% of people involved in architectural education are casual tutors. So as you see, that's a significant number of people from the industry or doctoral students or other equally useful persons being involved in tutoring, they have a significant influence on contact with students. And I, I think that needs to be taken more into consideration. I know that, for example, in other professions, you can talk about medicine, they certainly get better remunerated and recognised for what they do between education and the profession. As a school teacher, they also they get paid and remunerated in a far greater way and their expertise than what an architect does. So there's different ways that disciplines build this in. In engineering, students are, are required to do paid work experience for quite a number of weeks before they, they finish their course. So there is sort of this tacit agreement with the profession that they're going to provide these opportunities of paid work experience and that's where that, that connection is going to take place. So it's, it's well understood and it's built into the, the system. I think our system needs a little bit more armature to make sure it's, it's happening, whether it's going to be by the practice being um, involved as it is in education or whether it's how students through work integrated learning or work experience in offices have something more to draw upon and support in being able to give these experiences to students to ensure the next generation because goodness knows we need another good generation to come along. We need to make sure buildings are being well considered that are designerly, that, that are going to continue into the future. We, we don't want to see things to go backwards. From your exposure to different learning systems, have you seen any examples of places that are doing this particularly well, especially within architectural education? Mm, not these most latest ones. Um, it's obviously something that I need to go and have a, a look at more because it's more current at, at the moment. I'm interested to know what's happening in the UK. For a few years now, you've been able to become an architect by like a cadetship or apprenticeship. You literally, you work 
for the majority of your education and you have basically block release or you have one day that's at a university. So universities and large architecture firms are partnering together and I had a look at how many universities in England are accredited allowing this pathway and there's a significant amount of universities that are there. So that's really interesting to me and I, I guess I should disclose my bias here. I did come from a sandwich program uh, a while ago back in the day when you would get credit for working in an office as well as attending university and um, further to that I ask questions about the, the length of architectural education as well because it is typically five years, that's the tradition it's, it's been here, but does all of that have to be at a university is my question. We've got many other professionals who have four years instead of five. I worry about the expense of a five-year course and what that does in terms of who who is brave and bold enough to sign up for five years compared to some of the other professions as well. And I don't want the cost of something to put off who's undertaking different things. So, yes, to me, alternative pathways and the involvement of that intersection between work experience, learning in the, the office and how that's recognised with also the importance and the freedom that you get in going to a university and having a university education those things, I think, need to, to marry up again. At the moment, our funding situation, I know I sound like a bureaucrat by talking about funding and the university, but because I'm involved in it, I am far more aware of how much that controls and influences what goes on. It's our funding that has made those types of courses disappear because um, students would be considered part-time and the university would receive half the amount of money. So it's not as attractive or it's not as easy to have a quantum of staff doing what they need to do as academics and contribute to the profession if students are part-time as well. So there's, there's a few issues that are raised there. Do you have any propositions about how to get around that sort of bureaucracy around funding? And I guess the other kind of key thing as well would be if you're cutting out like one year of a course, what content would you remove? <laughs> well, I'm not going to um, nail myself to a mask there and say <laughs> what I should, should disappear. I know that's unfair. But I do think there is a lot still sitting in there that has a possibility. If you have a look at what's being accredited at the moment, it's looking at the minimum at the end of the course and how you achieve that is up to your institution. So as to how many hours, as to how much time you get to see a tutor and all these sorts of things, it's not concerned with that. It's concerned with the outcome at the end. So to me, the accreditation in some ways has made a clearer avenue of what is the minimum. And I think we should look at providing that minimum and then looking at all the other things that make it rich and wonderful after that. So that, that's how I would conceive of it. And I guess 
the opportunities if it is blended into some sort of work or recognition of practice means that some of these things of documentation, detailing, all that sort of thing, uh, knowledge of professional practice could potentially come through other means. So I see that possibly as opportunities there, as well as being a part of client meetings and understanding the, the to and throes of why and how designs change because our design educational experiences are very of one ilk or a one type because we don't have clients, we don't have budgets. We're, we're missing those components at this point in time. Admittedly, we're practising and we're getting our skills up so we can do that sort of thing. But, yeah, perhaps that's where it could be. So if the architectural education is based around the minimum standards of competency at like at the end of the degree how do you think students can participate or what do you think students can participate in to make the most out of this educational journey be there <laughs> be, be there like don't don't be passive don't expect that your university is going to provide everything for you and is going to do everything for you I think The roles and responsibilities, yes, there is a role and place for the university, but I think there's equally a responsibility for students to get together, to have an opinion on what's what's going on, to be out there within the community, being a part of the, the profession and becoming more familiar with it. I fully understand that a lot of students need to work to be able to support their studies and things like that. But as I was saying before, if everyone just went to something once a month or committed to something that was a part of a a community, I think it would make a significant difference because it's not until much later in in life do you realise what opportunities these open and how things happen and and how you build confidence and networks and how to get jobs and all these sorts of things. We're so focused on uh, mastering our skills of being able to communicate well and to understand precedence well and design well that we sort of forget the most fundamental things that we we need to get a job. We need to get along with other people. We need to be able to communicate well. We can have the best possible idea or um, design idea, but unless we can communicate it well and make it compelling, it's going to stay there on paper. And just knowing that the degree is very much one aspect and one aspect where you need time to develop these skills and understand it, but it's not what your whole job will be about. I think that's a really pertinent piece of advice. Thank you so much, Louise, for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us for today. I think it's given a lot of insight into how to make the most of one's architectural education and the value of it as a whole. So thank you so much. Thank you. I just hope people take responsibility. (laughs) It's your life. Go for it. Thank you, Louise. Thanks, Nicole. 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guest in this episode, Dr. Louise Wallace. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for sharing some of your incredible knowledge in architectural education, and also for teaching me while I studied at the University of Tasmania. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review, and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Sonar production team was Nicole Mosqueda-Mendez. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillowfort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.